episode 33 with writer and critic Robin Gavon. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I'm your host, Dario Kalmis, an artist, writer, brand consultant, and generally curious fellow. And each week we bring you a conversation from the pool of black genius to inspire, engage, and help you unleash your own imagination. Today's episode is with journalist and prize-winning critic Robin Gavon. Robin's love for the written word and the sound of a sentence is never lost on her readers. She slips in and out of the worlds of fashion, politics, culture, and race with the ease of a classically composed concerto. In a day where facts are fabled, Robin's essays share truth with intellectual curiosity and compassion. Growing up in Detroit, Robin spent her childhood loving books as opposed to fashion. She never considered a career in writing until her mother encouraged her to pursue journalism after she earned a degree in English from Princeton. Robin took her mother's advice, deferred her acceptance into law school, and continued her studies at the University of Michigan. Preferring to remain an outsider to fashion's insiders, Robin spent time at the Daily Beast and Newsweek as a fashion critic and correspondent. Today, Robin is best known for her work as senior critic at large at the Washington Post, where in 2006, she became the first and to this day only fashion editor to win a Pulitzer Prize for criticism. The committee noted Robin's witty, closely observed essays that transform fashion criticism into cultural criticism. Let's sit with this for a meditative moment and ask ourselves, what happens when we see the lives we lead and the work we do through the critical eyes of a conditioned culture? I imagine we just may discover our own soul-satisfying truth, or like Robin, we may come to know that we indeed have something to say, something to show, and something to offer another. And our something is absolutely and always worthy of our own highest honors. Robin's journey and work reminds me of the power of aesthetics when laced and layered through culture. At the time of recording, Robin was just returning to work after the passing of her father, and I was nervous to sit among grades. This is a tender conversation between two individuals pushing through personal struggles to get at what one day may be called the truth. Be sure to hit us up over on Twitter and Instagram at Black Imagination and let us know what resonated with you. Hit that subscribe button and leave us a review over on Apple Podcast. Let us know how we're doing over here. And now, without further ado, journalist and writer and critic and friend, Robin Gavon. Miss Robin Gavon. Welcome to the Institute of Black Imagination. I am so eager to get started um, with this conversation. Like the the sheer just gravity of the work that you've done over these past few decades is just incredible. And even in researching, like just you continue to work, you continue to show up. And so I'm just excited to hop into this conversation about journalism and critique and the art of writing. So thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. (laughs) 
Okay, so let's <laughs> let's get started. Like, let's hop right into it. Why do you write? Well, um, I think it's a combination of um, almost um, sort of a technical reason, and then I think kind of uh, a more emotional reason. The technical reason is that I love language. I love written word. I love the rhythm of sentences on a page. Um, I love just like the sound of words and um, that and the ability of words to convey so much more meaning than simply their definition, but also um, their just sort of social connections and, and the sound of them and the history of them. And so, you know, for all of those technical reasons, I love writing. And the other reason is just because I think that, um, you know, writing is that place where you can connect with people. And I think that if something is written well um, and thoughtfully and with great consideration, that it still has, that it has the capacity to move people. Um, I'm an, I am an optimist and I think that words still have the power to persuade for, for good. <laughs> <laughs> no, as actually, as you were speaking, you know, it made me think about you know, um, James Baldwin, and he speaks about, you know, being an optimist, like, like how we need optimism in order to even have hope, you know, for a future, even though, you know, and it's interesting because he's also in that tradition of critique as well. And, but he speaks about the role of optimism in critique. Like you can't really kind of critique without optimism. Um, how do you, like, what is the role of critique in society and what role has it culturally played in the history of the United States? Well, I mean, I, I don't know that I can speak that eloquently about, you know, sort of the historical aspects, but I mean, I do think that um, you, you have, there has to be some element of optimism and to some degree, perhaps even idealism um, in the critic, because um, otherwise it, I think it just sort of becomes kind of haranguing <laughs> and, and pretty depressing. Um, you know, I think the, the best critics are sort of constantly reminding people of, of their potential and constantly reminding them to, to aspire and to reach higher and to do better and to do the best that they can. And, um, you know, to remind us that, um, you know, we're all sort of in a, we should all be in the pursuit of, of excellence, both in, I think, our achievements, but also in our character, you know, in our sense of integrity and who we are as humans. I know that's getting far afield from, you know, sort of critiquing a work, but, you know, I, I do think that we're all sort of um, works in progress. And um, if they were, if, I think if we remember that, not only about ourselves, but also other people, we will all be better served. We're all works in progress. Absolutely. And, and kind of speaking about 
that progress and also process, like let's let's kind of rewind, like to the beginning, to Detroit. Uh, <laughs> first of all, such an incredible city. Like just the culture impact of that one city has fueled America for you know at the at the very least two hundred and fifty years. Um, but like. Who is Robin Gavon? Like, what is your origin story? Like, where where did you come from? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I don't think my origin story is that unique or that different from, you know, most people. I mean, I grew up in Detroit. And when I was growing up there, um, you know, it was sort of a mid-sized Midwestern city that, um, you know, at that time, you know, was quite, uh, was not particularly dysfunctional. It was just sort of a city that was fueled by the auto industry. Um, if you, if you grew up there, if, um, you know, if, if your parents didn't work for the auto industry, they worked for some auxiliary, um, industry that was connected to the auto industry or someone else in your family worked for the auto, auto industry. It was sort of ever present. Um, <clears throat> You know, I went to um, Renaissance High School, um, and um, you know, it was um, at the time it was kind of a new school. It was sort of a, a college prep school. Um, um, we were teased because we didn't really have much of a sports presence, but we could really take you down in you know the science fair. So. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> And, um, you know, it was, I mean, I liked growing up in Detroit. I mean, there definitely was a great music scene when I was there, when I was in high school. And then, um, you know, my early college years when I would go back, um, you know, it was the time of techno and raves. And, um, you know, it was just, it was a great place to be um, a teenager, a college kid you know going out and going to clubs because it was just it was a really really fun time and I mean and not only did you go to renaissance high school you also were the valedictorian of your class I mean just casually I've been doing their research (laughs) (laughs) just casually so you know I love I love you know one just doing this research but just seeing this 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 trail of like excellence achieved over and over and over again. I I have to tell you that, you know, and this is a reflection of Renaissance because yes, I was the valedictorian, but I was one of like seven. I mean, (laughs) who all had the exact same grade point average. So um, definitely a a school of uh, overachievers. (laughs) And and also with Renaissance High School, I have to give a um, big round of applause to um, my, with the teachers there, particularly the English teachers, um, because you know they were tremendous. And I think you know we talk a lot about the role of teachers um, in our culture and how they are underappreciated, and it's so true because you know to this day I think back to just some of the small gestures that uh, those teachers made that at the time didn't seem like they were that big of a deal, Um, you know, but in hindsight really had an incredible impact. You know, I remember um, an English teacher who 
um, you know, pulled me aside at the end of class one day and handed me a book that was not on the syllabus. And she just said, I think you might enjoy this book. It's terrific. And it was Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye. I have no idea why she decided to just hand me this book, um, but it was like a revelation. And, you know, the notes that, uh, you know, the instructors would write in, you know, these journals that we had to keep. And, um, you know, that just sort of encouraged you to like keep telling your story. I mean, I, I think, they were, they were all sort of small things, but I mean, I obviously remember them and, you know, they, and so they clearly were enormous things. And, and what's the, what's the, like, let's set the scene here. So this is, is this early, is this seventies Detroit? Yeah. It's uh, like late, like late 70s. Late 70s. And and what's the ethnic makeup of the school at the time? Um, you know, it's, it is probably, well, it's, it's predominantly black, but it's still diverse. Um, so if I had to guess, and I'm sure some person from Renaissance will definitely correct me, uh, I'm probably wrong, but I would guess it was probably 60% black and maybe 35% white and 5% other um, Hispanic or Asian. I'm not sure, I'm really not sure. I mean, I know my friend cluster was um, a diverse mix of people. Yeah, I'm, I'm asking because just thinking about, you know, one, just history and us understanding what history uh, actually looks like from, you know, 2021, but like, like in the, in the late seventies, you're in this really quite diverse high school. Um, and I'm sure like even, even myself growing up in St. Louis and, you know, the nineties and the two thousands, my school was not very diverse. And so this introduction of this Toni Morrison book, The Bluest Eye was with a, a population of actually a majority black school which lets me know a little bit more about like the curriculum and just like the general education that students are taught across america regardless of of demographics um but when did you first discover writing and what did it unlock within you it's really hard for me to say, to answer that question because i always loved writing um you know i grew up um, as an only child. And so um, I would spend a lot of time reading. I loved, loved, loved reading. And I could hole up in my room and just, you know, read a novel in an afternoon. Um, and in some ways, I think because um, writing felt very sort of natural for me, and I really loved it. Um, you know, I was I was the kid who was like hoping there'll be like the essay question on a test because I'm like, yeah, then I'm, you know, it's great if there's an essay question. Um, so, I mean, I always did it. I mean, I did it, um, you know, I, I was on like the student newspaper when I was in high school and um, I took creative writing when I was in college. 
And, you know, it was always, and I, and I majored in English because I really enjoyed writing. Um, but I never thought that I would have a career as a writer. I thought that I would probably go to law school. I mean, that was kind of the plan because it was, um, you know, it was the eighties and, you know, you went to either went to law school or business school or medical school. And I sort of cycled through all of them. You know, I was going to go to medical school and then I decided, no, I didn't want to do that. And then I sort of landed on law school um, and, you know, was really applying to law schools when it was my mother who kind of reminded me of how much I loved writing and asked me, one, why I was going to law school and I didn't really have a great answer. Um, and she encouraged me to consider grad school, either in journalism or in English. So that, that was when I sort of first thought about it as a career. Um, up until then, it was just something, it was something that I enjoyed and something that I thought I was good at, um, but just didn't think I could, you know, do anything particular with it. I know that sounds crazy. That it never dawned on me that like there are professional writers in the world, but I just, I never saw myself as a novelist um, and I was not, you know, I was not on the prints when I was in college on the Daily Princetonian. Um, you know, I was not part of the, like the newspaper crowd. You know, it just, the high school newspaper was basically just sort of an extracurricular that I did because like, friends were doing it and it sort of sounded like it could be fun. Um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't see myself, uh, pursuing a career in journalism. I mean, I really thought that, um, if not law school, then, you know, I briefly sort of had this vision that I would major in art history and own an art gallery someday. And I will never forget my very pragmatic father who was, uh, you know, writing the checks, uh, said to me, um, that's interesting. Um, have you thought about computer science? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, the, the people who were on like the Princetonian, they were like serious. They knew they were, you know, they were all in with journalism and everything. Um, so I was much more kind of exploring the arts whether it was art history, I spent some time doing, you know, like backstage stage managing stuff with the Triangle Club, which was like the big drama performance group. Um, so yeah, I was, I, I was a little bit more like on the creative end. I mean, I took creative writing, that sort of thing. Okay, I want to circle back to that. There's that's 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 really juicy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, because like I can I can in it I can really see the beginnings of this weaving of uh, aesthetics, you know, like aesthetics um, mm. and culture um, and 
like syst- like the systematic thinking like required for like law um, and how it kind of all landed in this place of fashion journalism. But we're, we're going to come back to that. You mentioned uh, your father and your mother. And I loved this anecdote that you that you told in an interview where you and your father would go to, I think, like the mall or the department store on Christmas Eve to just kind of people watch, to just kind of like escape for a second. And so pivoting like to your home life, what was your home life like? Like what were some of the lessons that you learned from your father and say your mother? Um, okay, um, you're gonna make me cheer up because my dad just passed away. Um, my, my home life was great. I mean, I was really lucky. I had, um, you know, my parents had, I mean, ultimately were married for like 59 years and um, were just very old school, you know, in their belief in the power of education. And, you know, if, you know, I had chores, certainly at home, but if I said, oh, but I have this paper that's due tomorrow, you know, then like the chores just got moved off the table. You know, if I was supposed to like, you know, do dishes or something after dinner. I no longer had to do dishes because I needed to focus on like getting my, you know, getting homework done. Um, So, you know, that was something that was just kind of ingrained from, you know, the start. But, you know, I was also, you know, as I said, just like a really lucky kid because, you know, my mother um, was, my mother loved writing and she, you know, would constantly read to me growing up. And she was kind of like that half of my brain, so to speak. And my father's uh, degree was in mechanical engineering. And so he had like this very analytical uh, brain. And I mean, I think those two things um, combined you know, when I was a kid. So I had like my mother who was, who would, want to read over, um, you know, homework assignments that had to do with writing. And I was always like, no, don't read it. You'll make me change it. Even then, like I was fighting my editor. Uh, And my father was the one who, you know, could help with like any sort of math homework um, and things like that. And, you know, and they were just great. I mean, my, you know, I did all of those things that um, little kids hopefully, you know, get to do, which is, you know, I got taken to museums and the children's museum and I participated in, you know, after school art classes and summer, you know, camps. And, you know, I was like the worst dancer in like a summer dance camp. Um, You know, oh, it was, it was very normal to me, but I suspect that in many Unfortunately, um, for a lot of kids, um, you know, that's not their normal. And so a lot of the things that I took for granted as sort of this is just what you do um, was not what other kids got to do. And, you know, and I had an extended family as, as well. You know, I had grandparents who were around and supportive and, um, you know, and friends that, I grew up with who are still friends. I'm still friends with today. So it was very, very, um, 
rooting. You know, I felt as a kid, I felt very safe and supported and, you know, like I had a tremendous cheerleading squad behind me. And what were some of like the lessons that you carry with you, like that your parents instilled in you? Um, you know, I think like a lot of parents of that generation and, you know, my parents were older, um, you know, they were part of that whole great migration, excuse me, from the South to the North. Um, and they definitely, you know, had those sort of mantras of, um, you know, you, you have to be better in order to be perceived as good. Um, that you shouldn't forget where you've come from, that you, you know, should always try to give back in some way. Um, And, you know, but they also, um, you know, were not the sort of people who sort of had this preconceived idea of what success meant, you know, like you didn't have to be a doctor or a lawyer or, you know, in my mother's mind, like a teacher was just like, if you were a teacher, you were doing God's work. And like, that was just like the most amazing thing you could do. Um, you know, they were very much do follow your passion and, 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 and do your best. I mean, that, I think, you know, that was the other thing too, that, um, you know, my, both of my parents were really good at, which was like, just do your best. And if you've done your best, then you could be proud of that. But, you know, if you sort of do it in a kind of half-assed way, well, then, you know, it's, it's on you. Mm. Mm. I, I, I love that. I'm going to kind of pivot to your career for a second. So to, mm. for, for listeners who don't have access to Google really quickly. Um, so Robin Gavon, Pulitzer prize winning journalist. I'm actually nervous. I can't even believe I'm asking her questions right now. Um, I'm so nervous. Um, but you know, you come, you grew up in Detroit, you go to Princeton undergrad, you return to Michigan and Arbor, uh, for journalism school for, for grad school. And then you land a job at the Detroit free press. Am I correct? Yes. My hometown newspaper your hometown newspaper. And what was that experience like? Like, what was your first beat? Um, well, I mean, getting the job at the Free Press was major. I mean, it was incredibly exciting. It was the newspaper that had landed on our front porch ever since I was a kid. And at the time, there were, there were, you know, there were two newspapers in the city, the Free Press and the Detroit News. And the Detroit Free Press was kind of considered a writer's paper. And so that made it even more exciting uh, for me. And, um, and here's, here's my, my anecdote for um, people graduating from college, right? And you're doing the interview. Because I have no idea where like this came from. But I had you know, gone through the interview process at the Free Press and um, they offered me um, a two-year internship. You know, I had done like a couple of internships and I had finished grad school. And so instead of like a full-time job, they had offered me a two-year internship, which I think a lot of people would have thought, 
okay, well, that sounds really good because at the end of two years, I will probably get hired. Um, but somewhere, I have no idea where, I found the wherewithal to say, you know, that is a really great offer, but what I really want is a full-time job. And the editor that I said that to uh, sort of paused and said, okay, well, you know, let me think about it and, I, you know, and I'll be in touch. And the next day I called and offered me a full-time job. So that was like very exciting. Um, so there you go. Ask for what you want because the only thing they can do is say no. Um, and my, I did not have a beat when I started. I started as a, a general assignment feature writer in what was their entertainment department, um, which is where all the critics were. Um, so I you know, was sort of like the backup player. Um, I, I joked that I you know, wrote about like terrible movies, terrible concerts, terrible theatrical productions, anything that the main critic did not really want to do. Like I would do it. Um, and that's kind of how I started writing about um, the techno scene in Detroit because I was kind of looking around for something that I could kind of claim as my own uh, and not have to double check if it was you know infringing on somebody else's um, beat. And so I started writing about techno and the DJs who were um, you know working in the clubs because, I was going out to the clubs and I was listening to the to techno and, you know, thought it was interesting and it was developing. So that was kind of my first beat. And you ended up in the fashion space kind of accidentally as well. Like someone just kind of dropped away and you slid well, in. No, the fashion editor um, at the Free Press, and this is a testament to all of sort of to the what's happened to um, local news to a large degree. You know, the, both the free press and the news had fashion editors who covered the women's industry and they also had someone who covered men's. And they sent these people to New York and they sent them to Europe twice a year. And oftentimes would send along a photographer with them. So, I mean, there was a huge commitment uh, to fashion and the fashion editor at the Free Press uh, moved on to become uh, a lifestyle columnist and they were looking to replace her. And um, I had no um, background in fashion. Um, I had no particular interest in fashion, but I wanted to be because, you know, I was still kind of searching um, for a real sort of big thing to call my own. And, um, and I thought, well, you know, I wear clothes. Like it sounds like it could be interesting. And I sat down with uh, the outgoing fashion editor to ask her about the job and like what she, what it was like and what she had liked about it. And she had loved it and said that, you know, it, you do all this travel and it's really interesting. And so I, you know, pitched myself for the job and I kind of sat down uh, with, you know, my little kitchen cabinet uh, to ask for some thoughts and ideas about and information about fashion. Uh, and I pitched myself and I interviewed and I did not get the job because, as I said, I knew nothing about fashion. Uh, but they did say, you know what, 
why don't you keep covering, you know, sort of nightlife and then add um, menswear uh, to your plate. And so that was how I started. I started covering menswear. Hmm. You know, I find this so interesting that you all had separate, like, you know, again, I'm looking through the lens of my lifetime, right? So that there was, like, at this time, there was a separate menswear fashion writer at a regional newspaper. I mean, that's kind of huge. Oh, Daria, when I, the first time I went to Europe, uh, well, this, this is how committed the paper was. So they tell me that I can cover menswear and they hire a more experienced person to take on the main fashion job. But she was based in Dallas and would not be arriving until uh, after the European shows. And at that time, uh, the European shows came before New York. Um, And so she would be in place in time to cover New York, but there wouldn't be anyone to cover Europe. And they were so committed that they did not want to miss a season. And so they said to me, well, we've already missed Milan, but if you can go and cover London and Paris, that would be great. So, I mean, I was like thrown into it with, I mean, I had to go to Paris um, with maybe, you know, like 10 days notice. And that was like organizing everything. I mean, I think the only thing that had been set up was um, like the hotel had been pre-booked. And when I got to Paris, there were probably, you know, a dozen editors from regional papers who were in Paris. Right. I mean, there was definitely like the Houston Chronicle, the Fort Worth Star Telegraph, the Dallas Morning News, the San Francisco Chronicle, the L.A. Times, Chicago Times, Sun Times, the Chicago Tribune. There were like Boston papers, Miami or at least Fort Lauderdale. I mean, there was this long list of all of these regional newspapers, some of which don't even exist anymore, all of whom sent writers to Europe. The Atlanta paper regularly sent some, someone to cover fashion in Europe and in New York. I mean, it was, there, there was an entire section of American newspapers. I mean, now it's almost, it's, it's like hard to believe, but I, Time. Yeah, it was, it was massive. So I definitely was not alone. Like I had like this whole sort of posse of other newspaper people. And, and as you say it, it makes me think, and I don't know if you've considered this, but like, how has that loss like affected culture and the ways in which I want to say even particularly men, but maybe men and women view themselves in like their, their public presentation, right? Because I'm thinking if there was a dedicated section in a regional newspaper, specifically for menswear, and that over time gets siphoned away, how has that reflected in culture? Like, have you, have you thought about that? Do you think that it, it has had an effect just on how we view ourselves? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's had an effect, um, well, first on, on media, because um, so many, because that, that, was, that was sort of a training ground. That was a pipeline. You know, uh, people, people who wanted to write about the fashion industry 
you know, had all of these opportunities, all of these places where they could learn how to write about the fashion industry with a journalistic foundation. And those places don't exist anymore. And so now people who are interested in writing about fashion, they oftentimes have to just kind of, you know, make their own circumstances, right? You know, they start their own blog or they start their, you know, just sort of writing critiques on Substack or Medium or whatever. And they don't have that kind of journalistic underpinning that you get from having worked at a newspaper. Um, so I think that has really just sort of changed um, in many ways the, the tenor of fashion coverage. Um, and it also changed the relationship that um, I think the average person had with fashion because as it was no longer covered by their hometown paper and you know, with their hometown paper drawing connections between what was happening on a runway with what was showing up in their local stores and what they were seeing on their street and really forming this kind of, um, you know, sort of easy, familiar connection to fashion. Fashion started to become something that was seen as much more distant, much more about, you know, either coast and the places where fashion coverage still really existed, um, you know, in those mid-sized cities was really as entertainment. You know, it often got sort of pushed onto the entertainment staff. And so you still got red carpet coverage. You still got, you know, you still get Met Gala coverage. Um, you still know what celebrities are wearing, but you lost all the coverage that is about the truth and the reality and the grit and the hard work and just the people uh, in the fashion industry. And, and, and the fashion industry also lost watchdogs, you know, people who would write about them um, with a certain amount of rigor and skepticism. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think um, you know, that shift has been felt in many, many ways, some of them minor, some of them profound, um, and most of them not good. Mm. And you've, you've mentioned earlier that you don't actually consider yourself a part of the fashion industry. Um, and to be honest, neither do I, actually. <laughs> I say I work around fashion. I don't work in fashion. I work around fashion. But you've also described the fashion industry as like fundamentally insecure. Like, why is that? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, I just find it, um, you know, interesting that like fashion is always going through a little bit of an existential crisis. Um, whenever any, whenever big news happens, you know, over there, fashion starts to wonder, do we have a reason for being anymore? You know, do people care about what we're doing? Do we have a place, um, you know, does, does what we're saying matter in the great scheme of what's happening over there? And, you know, I feel like, you know, in the visual arts, people don't have that existential angst. And, you know, certainly Hollywood doesn't. And I don't think, you know, musicians do. Um, I, don't, I just don't think that other 
creative um, uh, industries so often question what it is that they're doing when things get serious. Um, because I think fundamentally in those other creative industries, there's a sense of, of, you know, there's an understanding that they have the capacity to respond to serious issues. And I think fashion is still sort of trying to figure out how it should respond when serious things happen. And, and so that's why I, I think that, you know, my, my takeaway is that there's a kind of insecurity in, in sort of fashion constantly doubting its ability to respond um, to, to, to serious concerns. Yeah, I think it can. And I think that, um, you know, it often does. I mean, I think that, you know, during the early days of the pandemic, when the industry pivoted and started, you know, producing masks, I think when the industry turns its attention to, to fundraising or when, um, you know, as an institution, it starts to rethink how it defines great fashion and who has to participate and how certain inspiration is handled. I mean, I think those are serious responses to issues from, you know, a pandemic to systemic racism. Um, you know, I, I sometimes I, I don't think that fashion necessarily sees itself as responding, um, even when, you know, even when it is. And then, you know, designers and um, designers have an enormous stage. You know, they, they, particularly with live shows, but also with digital shows, you know, they have that, you know, 10, 15 minutes to say something. And as a critic, my feeling has always been that, you know, if you're going to present, have a show and you're gonna, you know, step up to the microphone, have something to say, and, you know, I look at a designer like Christian Siriano, who has said a tremendous amount about inclusivity on his runway, simply by who he chooses to put on his runway. Um, you know, I think a designer like Kirby, who, you know, you work with, has said tremendous things about the beauty of the normalcy of Black American lives. And you know that has been an ongoing story that he's put on his runway, and you know that has been profound. And you know, and I think you know the list can go on and on. You know, sometimes a show is just about you know look at these really expensive clothes, but you know, but I also think that a designer like you know Pierre Paolo, Pierre Paolo um, from Valentino, you know, his shows are fundamentally about beauty and just, you know, sometimes, you know, an exquisite, beautiful collection that just truly takes your breath away. But he makes a point of making sure that, you know, a lot of different people get to participate in that beauty. And sometimes it doesn't have to be more profound than that to really take on a serious issue. 
that beauty belongs to everyone. I love that phrase. Beauty belongs to everyone. And, and it also, you know, makes me think that sometimes beauty is enough. Like, I think for some reason we think like beauty isn't enough, but like it is the thing that can lift us out of, you know, a situation or a mood. I remember not not to get all Andre Leon Talley, like I'm starving for beauty. <laughs> but I do remember there was a time actually when I was in when I was in New York and I literally was like kind of down and depressed. And the Cooper Hewitt had an exhibition on beauty and it completely it just completely took me away like they explored it through all of these different mediums through scent through light through smell mm-hmm. taste and it just completely lifted me out of whatever doldrum I was in um but to to pivot to like the actual practice of, of journalism you know I think in in this time when like the truth seems like so elusive and also so malleable like it doesn't feel as fixed as it used to be and you know even you kind of speaking about the loss of of regional newspapers and creating um, a sense of like journalistic rigor um, which I think plays into this idea of like the loss of truth Um, but like what are some of those techniques that would allow for the layperson, right? Some, what are some of those journalistic techniques that would allow for the layperson to just get closer to the truth? Well, you know, I, I do think that it would be so great if there were kind of a media literacy course taught in schools. But, you know, I don't think that, I mean, the truth begins with the facts, right? And so, you know, I think it's important that even if you are writing an essay about um, that, that is, you know, your opinion of something, um, the opinion still has to be rooted in fact. And, you know, so for instance, um, you know, there have been times when I have been writing about a collection that just does not appeal to me. And I can give, you know, a litany of reasons why I think that a particular brand, you know, um, isn't succeeding, um, you know, from an aesthetic point of view. But then, you know, I will also look at its annual, the annual report. (laughs) And, you know, if like sales are doing just fine, well then, you know, that indicates, okay, this is, you know, clearly someone is, buying that people are buying this, people are, are, are accepting of this and people are applauding this. And so, you know, to some degree, my role as a critic then becomes to understand why something is selling, even though I think that the aesthetics are not great, to understand what it is that people, you know, are drawn to and what it is that, um, you know, makes a brand sort of just continue to grow and succeed in spite of my sense as a critic that it's not succeeding aesthetically. And, you know, that forces me to think about, okay, you know, how is, how has the cultural understanding of aesthetics changed? I mean, what did, what is it that people now want from fashion? Maybe they want something different 
you know, today than they wanted a year ago. And this designer or this brand is, is delivering that. Maybe they are, you know, the, the reason that people are sort of glomming on to a brand is because um, they are explicitly rejecting something that has come before. Maybe, you know, my eyes are so used to viewing something through a particular window that I need to adjust my vision and try to see it from a different point of view and understand that. So, you know, to me, you are always sort of in pursuit of the truth. And in, to get there, in my mind, is like you're constantly stepping from one fact to another. You know, it's, it's sort of like you're crossing this, this river where the truth is on the other side and getting there means being able to like step from one fact to another and it doesn't necessarily lead in a straight line. You know, sometimes it's, it's like a crazy um, zigzag path and sometimes you slip <laughs> you know, and you have to like, climb back up um, to just torture uh, that metaphor. Um, but yeah, I mean, but to me, it, it's still, it always, comes down to fact. You know, I have been on record for not being a fan of Bellman. I mean, I, it's an aesthetic that I think is a, rather garish. But, you know, at a certain point, it's like, okay, I've, I've made my opinion known. So, like, no one wants to just keep reading me kvetching about how I don't like Bellman. So, I mean, I was really curious about, you know, the way that it was perceived. And one of the things that I found really, really striking was how different the collection often looked in photographs than it did in person. And I realized that the vast majority of people who are consuming and who are championing Belmont are, are seeing it in, in photography and video. They're not seeing it you know, in this tiny room. And, you know, that said a lot to me about um, the, the savviness of the designer who understood, who understands that most people are consuming fashion through images. And he had been able to create like such um, an enormous fan base through those images in which, yeah, I mean, the, the, everything looked so different and looked great. So, you know, that was a revelation. Like, okay, here is, uh, you understand the power of social media, but this was kind of a, oh, and here's this other power that social media has. Like, it's like a long list of powers of social media. Yeah, that's actually a, an incredible segue into like my next question, which is so thank you. Um, but like, how has like over your journalistic career, how has the plethora or the introduction even of social media shifted the way in which people dress? Well, I mean, it's changed um, the dynamic of where they're looking looking for inspiration. Um, you know, it. it for a while, you know, it was was so um, celebrity based, and now, um, you know, someone can have the same effect as a celebrity if they have enough um, followers on Instagram. And so, I think that has meant that, and there's 
the field of who um, people find inspiring has really grown. And, you know, and that's, and that's a great thing because it means that so many different kinds of people um, can, are now looked to for inspiration. And it's, I think, broadened the sense of um, what is uh, fashionable or stylish or what have you. Um, I think it's, you know, sort of democratized things in a, in a way. Um, I think to some degree, there's also been a little bit of, you know, in the same way that other parts of culture have um, have sort of devalued authorities and experts and professionals. I mean, I'm thinking kind of in the realm of politics, uh, to some degree, you know, in the world of science, that um, expert that expertise is perceived as being somehow suspicious. You know, the experts are part of the establishment. The experts are part of the deep state, um, and you don't want to trust them. Um, I think there's a little, some of that happens in fashion as well. And there's, there can be a tendency to want to um, give more credence to uh, the outsider and in, in doing so, take away credence from the insider as if there's sort of um, a finite amount of respect and if you start to respect this outsider then you have to take a little bit of respect away from the insider instead of just sort of growing the amount of respect that you have to go all around um and i i want to i want to pivot to your 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 new role or most recent role um, as senior critic at large at the Washington Post. So kind of expanding um, your, your, your history of fashion writing at the, at the publication. Um, And, you know, for me, it's been such a pleasure to have your perceptivity um, on a range of issues um, and the ways in which you really like dissect and get to the heart of so many issues. And um, one one thing you wrote recently, I'm going to read just a little bit um, just so just so listeners can get a, a better understanding of what I mean. And then we can like tap in a little bit more about the levers um, that the garment and fashion um, can play like in our in our everyday lives. And so this is uh, the article that you wrote. Uh, about Michael K. Williams, um, who was our Omar Little in The Wire. And I quote, Fictional stories thrive in the gray. The culture rewards those who bring complicated people to life. We give them statuettes and applause and free clothes and jewelry. We reserve special accolades for fictionalized outsiders the people of color whose challenges and banalities are turned into moving narratives, the LGBTQ folk whose loves and struggles come with good cinematography and a memorable soundtrack. But in the real world, the gray zone can remain an exclusive club. This safe space in which imperfections are accepted and mistakes come with mulligans is readily available for some, but not all. 
Those most in need of asylum, a bit of cheerleading, and a few simple acts of kindness are too often boxed out. End quote. And what I love about that phrase, and you're speaking about um, Michael Williams and his role as Omar Little and, you know, the life his character lived and how, you know, America fell in love with this very complicated character, but seems to have uh, a bit of resistance or challenge accepting the real life version, the real life complicated version um, of a care of a person like an Omar Little. Um, and it seems like we're kind of constantly battling these two worlds, right? Like the world as imagined, you know, and, and black people as imagined for entertainment and then like the real world. And so like, how have you used writing to like help us bridge that gap? You know, I started the new role um, in September of last year. So it's, it's been um, a year and it was, it sort of formalized um, what I had kind of been doing um, for a few months leading up to that when fashion kind of really slowed down um, because of the pandemic. And, you know, I was writing a lot about, um, you know, sort of politics and the Black Lives Matter protests and things like that. And, you know, to be honest, a lot of it was just <laughs> cheaper than a therapist. It was my own um, need to try to make sense of some of the senseless, inscrutable, terrible, crazy things that were happening. And, um, you know, just really trying to you know, trying to understand it, but, you know, before I could even sort of get to understanding, just trying to get a sense of, just trying to, to dissect what it was that I was trying to understand, trying to dissect what, it, why something, um, you know, made me respond in a particular way, emotionally in a particular way. And you said, and so with the, with the Michael K. Williams piece, I was just really struck um, you know, by how so many pieces had talked about the complexity of Omar and how he was so wonderful in bringing that to life. And, um, you know, and sort of people reflecting on this idea that the reason um, Omar was such a compelling character was because he just felt so real, right? And I just started thinking, yeah, except there are you know, there are lots of real Omars out there. I mean, not to that extreme, certainly, not like walking around with a sawed-off shotgun, <laughs> humming nursery rhymes. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of Omars in the sense that people who, you know, can do something illegal or terrible on one day and still be beloved by their family or still go to church on Sunday or still, you know, hold down a job even as they're doing something shady on the side. And there are lots of complicated reasons why people do that. And, you know, that as a culture, we're not particularly interested in learning about those reasons or understanding those people or giving people, you know, 
again, like sort of going back to, you know, what we we're talking about earlier, giving people the space to, to be imperfect and to grow and to, you know, be the work in progress. And so, you know, that's why I was just, it was like that contradiction that I found um, to be uh, something that I just wanted to kind of dig into and, and try to understand it a little bit more. And also, you know, certainly just sort of pay homage to Williams, who was such a tremendous actor and, you know, really was able to sort of breathe life into this very complicated character. Yeah, it's, it's, and I, and I, if I'm not mistaken, a bit later in that piece, you speak about, and I'm, I'm totally paraphrasing here, but like almost how it's like we almost spend our ability to see nuance on like entertainment and, 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 and we can't, we don't have enough like left in our real life. It's like everything in life kind of becomes very black and white. And like, how do we have this suspension of disbelief where we give fictionalized people a breath and real people none? And it's something that was a thread also like in the, in the piece that you wrote in Cuomo, on, on Cuomo uh, and his resignation that, that, and, and it's really, it's really incredible. Um, I mean, obviously I don't have to tell you how incredible you are. You know, it, it <laughs> in some ways of, um, you know, some of the reader emails that I, I got when I was writing about um, the Derek Chauvin trial. And, um, you know, and there, you know, and there are 10 people who, um, you know, sort of disagree with uh, like a column. Sometimes they just like to keep writing to you to keep expressing their disagreement. And, but one of the sort of often repeated um, uh, lines of complaint was, you know, it was that idea that, well, what Chauvin did, or let's just say, you know, what, you know, uh, sort of a, an unscrupulous police officer did, you know, it, it was bad, but, you know, that person that he did it to, well, they were no angel. Right. There's always this kind of, or there is often this, this sense that the imperfections of the victim somehow make the actions of the accused less bad. And, you know, I just thought, why, why does, why are you so adamant that like the victim has to be perfect? before you can allow that what happened in a certain situation was wrong. And there's, you know, and we do, we like, we like to classify, you know, people as good or bad, deserving or not, innocent or guilty. Um, you know, we see it now with the, um, you know, the story of, you know, Gabby Petito, who's was found, um, whose body was found. And there is this, this, undercurrent of, you know, our interest in, our concern for the attention that was focused, that has been focused on her is because of this perception that she is innocent. She is this innocent person who has gone missing. And there's always sort of undercurrent, you know, this, there's this ongoing undercurrent that 
some people who go missing aren't innocent and therefore do not deserve to be found. Or, you know, or don't deserve the same kind of attention. And, you know, that decision of who is innocent and who is deserving, you know, that, that is like so deeply woven into our culture and it's woven all the way back into, you know, into fashion and into who we put on the covers of magazines, who we held up, hold up as standards of beauty and desirability, who we perceive as being, you know, the customers of, you know, exquisite um, products and luxury products. You know, there's a sense of like who is who is the deserving customer of that and who is the you know the customer who kind of comes in over the transom that we don't really <laughs> want so much mm-hmm. 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 yeah that just the you know i i i, I um, teach a course at Parsons uh, called Decolonizing the Gaze, Fashion, Race, and the Aesthetics of Visual Design. And that's something that we speak about is, you know, and in, in, in that course, really speaking about, you know, the image or, um, yeah, just the image being anything that falls in the retinal plane. So that's not just a still or a moving image, but that's also urban design planning. But, you know, the ways in which we read something like, the disappearance of this young woman. It's not just about who is missing, but who's missing that we don't know about, right? So like what's underneath, like what's what's not there, right? And it's, it's something that you, you do a lot in, in your writing. Like it's about the words you use and then the words that you don't use. But here it's also like this reinforcement of who is deserving, who is actually just seen as human because that's underneath all of that that's what you're saying right that this person is human and so they deserve to be found and under that and underneath that you're saying this person is valuable right and so it's also then you know a uh, um a kind of coding of of values as well um and for me i'm getting a little heated actually because it just i just like the sheer ignorance, like the sheer ignorance and, and I will say willful ignorance of these um, reinforced tropes of value as, a re- as it pertains to image, as it pertains to like media coverage. Um, for me, it, it kind of like spits in the face of the work that was done last summer right in the streets right like well, a lot of it i think is who is who is allowed grace right i mean i think we all understand that you know part of being human is is being flawed and some people we are willing to forgive their flaws and accept those flaws as just being part of what it means to to be human and we're willing to accept that you know they can rise above um, perhaps uh, a troubled past. And then there are other people who, you know, are forever trapped by that past. And we, we're not willing to extend the same kind of grace to them. Yeah, this phrase trapped by your past. I'm, I, I want to, 
I have so many questions, Robin. I'm just going to like, I'm just going to fly in. Like, I'm just going to go in. But that trap by your past, like I was having a, a conversation um, yesterday and the ways in, um, in speaking about um, COVID and the vaccines. And, you know, I don't have a television. I'm not very news savvy, actually. I'm usually just existing in my own head. Um, and I was not aware of the sheer number of black and brown individuals in the United States who remained unvaccinated. And in speaking about it and to a friend the other day, thinking about how underneath a lot of that is a, is a historical understanding of the ways in which black bodies were experimented on, um, their relationship with the medical industry, thinking of people like uh, Henrietta Lacks. And so there is a, there is a fear, there is um, a hesitancy to trust. Um, but it ends up kind of being a double whammy in a way. Like you, you, in the time of that history, are more likely to die. And then because of that history, you also then suffer a greater amount of death as well, right? So like even in the present, because of this past, so many of us are actually falling away because so it's like you're almost trapped twice right you're trapped in the moment and then after it, after it because of that history but like i said i'm i'm flying through i want to respect your time thank you um this move to washington dc um this is a total pivot but like i visited dc maybe once or twice for a couple of hours at a time and i actually found it to be one of the most unfashionable places I've ever been in the in in the world, um, and yet, like you, you spend a lot of time in New York, and then you moved to DC. And in your writing, I I see like, although it's not un it's pretty unfashionable, the ways in which clothes and fashion leverage power are used to leverage power in the United States and in Washington, D.C. is something that you write a lot about. And so how did your outlook on dressing shift when you actually relocated to D.C. and saw those levers in action? Well, I might ask you when you were in D.C. and where <laughs> you went. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to defend my, you know, adopted hometown <laughs> Um, I mean, I do think that people tend to uh, equate uh, C-SPAN DC with, or I should say C-SPAN Washington with DC. And I also think that people have a tendency to go to Georgetown and want to claim that as sort of the center of what would be fashion in DC. And that hasn't been the case um, for a long time. I mean, I think um, sort of the, the, the DC sort of social, uh, I would say uh, contemporary social world has long shifted from Georgetown. Um, but anyway, um, you know, I spent, 10 years about living in New York before I moved back to, to DC. And one of the things that always struck me is that New York is absolutely a more fashionable place. Like you see it visually wherever you go. 
But, you know, I also always say to people, if New York wasn't more visually a fashionable place, there would be something wrong because New York is the center of the fashion industry and architecture and, you know, theater and, you know, all of these creative industries. And if you didn't see that reflected on the street, you would scratch your head and you'd be very puzzled by that. And, you know, that's just, that's just not the case certainly in, in Washington, but um, I, I think that I, I've often said this, that when I'm in Washington, I do think that per capita, particularly when it comes to women, that I have met more interesting, amazing women in Washington than I did than in New York. And, you know, chalk that up to like, whatever you want to. And so as a writer, as someone who's writing about fashion, one of the things that I quickly realized was that, um, you know, DC is full of people who are really intellectually curious and they pride themselves on how much stuff they know. And so writing about fashion in a way that sort of engaged that curiosity was really, you know, energizing for me because even if people were not wearing these clothes, they were deeply interested in them and had thoughts about them and, you know, could connect, um, you know, an image from a runway production with some, excuse me, historical image that they knew about from, you know, East Asian studies or something. I mean, so it was always really intriguing to me that no, people were not necessarily engaging with fashion coverage in terms of, I want to go buy that, but they were absolutely engaging with it in terms of, you know, the inspiration and, you know, what it meant in sort of a larger, from a larger perspective. And, and that was really gratifying. And Certainly, you know, I start writing a lot more about the role that clothing plays in, you know, in the power dynamic, um, in part because, you know, just being in Washington sort of politics just kind of seeps into everything. And that's, and that's always a question. And so the use of fashion as a way of announcing one's power and authority um, and the way that that, how much that, that has, has transformed over the years um, I mean, it comes directly out of my being based here. Um, and the other thing that I would say, which I also found really important, is that, you know, the Washington Post has never had um, a separate fashion section, which, you know, fashion lives in the style section, where it sits alongside political profiles and uh, visual art reviews and architectural reviews and film, you know, profiles of directors and, um, you know, and dancers and like everything that the culture entails. And as a result, you know, I love the sort of serendipitous nature of people reading style um, and stumbling across um, a fashion story and being engaged by it um, and being surprised that they that they were engaged by it because they never thought that they would be interested in fashion and so would never seek it out. And now with the you know with the new column which lives in 
um, the A section of the paper or the national section of the paper, you know, I have been struck by how people who, you know, read some of my fashion coverage are, you know, deeply engaged with columns that are about politics. And, you know, people who have never read anything that I wrote about fashion and sort of discovered me when I was writing, when I started writing about politics, you know, then sort of are equally intrigued when I write about like Tiffany and company and Beyonce and Jay-Z um, and slide that into the A section. So, it's, um, you know, I think to me, fashion is at its best when it doesn't live in a fashion ghetto. Mm-hmm. You know, and speaking about like the ways in which, you know, politicians in particular um, use garments to leverage power or to, you know, promote a message or something like that. Um, what is your read on AOC's Met Gala dress? Mm, the dress, the dress heard around the world. Um, no, I think that she is, I think that she is a very, she has a very savvy use of social media and, you know, very much wanted to ruffle feathers, um, you know, with that. You know, but I think it's, I think it's complicated because on the one hand, yeah, you know, she took her, tax the rich uh, message sort of into the lion's den um, and, you know, and, and, you know, and displayed it on the red carpet. But at the same time, I mean, I do, I do sort of see the kind of disingenuousness of um, sort of, being antagonistic towards and criticizing that world and then sort of joining that world for the evening. And yes, um, uh, public officials regularly go to the Met Gala and they go because, you know, the Met is part of their constituency. It's part of, you know, the city. I mean, there are a multitude of reasons why um, politicians go to the Met Gala. And at the same time, I sort of feel like um, there's great pleasure in going to the Met Gala. So, you know, I, I think to, to, to pretend that you're going to make a political point or to say that you're going and wanting to make a political point is perfectly fine. But the reality is that you could have made that political point by simply, you know, standing in front of the Met during the gala. Like you didn't have to walk the red carpet and go into the gala and have dinner and enjoy all the wonders of the Met Gala. So, you know, it's just, it's, it's kind of, you know, when people take someone to task for going, it's like, well, come on, really? Would you turn down an invitation? Probably not. Um, so if you're going to go, do you want to make the political point? Yes. But that's certainly not the only way to make that political, political point. 
So, I mean, I think it's fraught and complicated and, you know, I'm not ready to give her a free pass, but at the same time, I'm also not ready to like fully castigate her. Yeah, when I when I saw it, I I also response to that. <laughs> no, I I actually also saw it in response to um, that parka that Melania wore that said, "I don't really care, do you?" Right. So, really, in conversation with not only the messages that just clothing themselves bring, right, but then also the messages on clothes, right, like the meta, like, like gilding the lily, so to speak. Um, but I, I, I also want to, to you know, and just on that topic, yeah. you know, the whole, the idea of, okay, tax the rich. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's, I mean, it's a great, quick hit message, except, you know, I think the real question becomes like, who, who are you defining as the rich? I mean, is it, are, are you speaking specifically of like, you know, the, the realm of like the 0.001% or are you talking about the people who support the Met? Or are you talking about the people who make donations to the Met? Are you talking to, I mean, depending on where you sit, on the social scale, the rich means a lot of different things. And, you know, so I, I would just throw that, that in there. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a loose target. You know, it's not really hitting, you know, at much. And I think also speaks to, um, you know, the 140 character, world that we live in right where you reduce like nuance into like a quick bite that has like an emotional reaction which multiple people on the political spectrum have used to to do such without ever really saying anything like but i I, you know i don't i don't want to get all into aoc one thing i'm really interested in what i love so much also about just your presence in the world is not only uh, coming from a place of critique, which I think culturally is so necessary because it's our reflection back on ourselves um, in order to actually move forward maybe, um, to to maybe rethink some things or maybe to think deeper about um, the lives that we're living, the, the culture that's flowing past us at any given moment. But also really loving that this perceptivity is coming from a black woman. Like, what does that mean for you to, 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 to be here at a national publication and to allow for and to push forward not only black perceptivity, but Black female perceptivity? Um, You know, I think that calls for, to to answer that question, I think it sort of calls for being able to kind of step outside yourself a little bit more than I think I'm able to at this point. Um, But 
you know, again, to, to, you know, to refer back to my parents and their sort of old school ways, there was definitely an element of like, you should, you know, be a credit to your race. (laughs) (laughs) You know, don't, don't embarrass the family. Um, But, you know, I definitely had a moment where I kind of realized that for lack of a better description, that that people had were watching, that people had noticed what I was doing. And that was, and this was actually many years ago, and it was why I moved to New York, because I left the post to um, go to Vogue magazine. And I was there for probably like a little less than a year um, as associate editor. And um, when I got there, um, there was like a little in the magazine announcing my arrival and there was a photograph and I always joke that I will I had never up until that moment and I will never again look that great in a photograph because I had the entire village of Vogue making that photograph happen (laughs) I mean it was it was outside in Central Park and like 12 inches away from me there was someone making sure that like every hair was sort of perfectly fly away. Um, But after that picture ran in the little blurb, I remember getting um, notes from young black girls in particular that I did not know, um, who just really voiced their enthusiasm and their pleasure in seeing someone who, uh, seeing a black woman um, on the masthead at Vogue. And it had never dawned on me really that, you know, anyone would respond in that way, that anyone would um, feel that kind of connection who didn't know me personally. And, you know, and that was probably the, the moment when I kind of realized that, yeah, like where, you, where you're stepping people are noticing the footsteps, the impressions that you leave behind. And I probably, I don't know, probably a more cognizant person would have like (laughs) thought of that sooner. Um, But yeah, I mean, so so I do recognize that um, I have a privilege to be in a position where I have, you know, access to a megaphone and that it behooves me to think carefully about what I say and how I say it. And also um, to think carefully about, you know, the things that don't get said, you know, and ask, you know, should do, do I need to, do I need to speak up? Yeah. What does a, what does a well-lived life look for you? What is a well-lived life? What does a well-lived life look like for you? Well, I think it's one that is lived with integrity and optimism and uh, an open heart and an open mind. And visually like no lake, no river, (laughs) no beach, (laughs) 
Um, you know, uh, if I, you know, was constructing my, my dream environment, mm -hmm. it would be, you know, a glass house in the mountains. Mm. Really beautiful. <laughs> no, I love that. And, and how, you know, and, and with this incredible career, like how have you been able to, or how do you navigate like romantic relationships, like creating space for them, succeeding in them, uh, like, well, or I not? Wouldn't say that I have succeeded. <laughs> um, you know, it's if I, I would say that if there is like one thing that um, I have yet to find success in, it would probably be um, the romance department. But I have, but I am also an eternal optimist, <laughs> <laughs> and a lover of Australian licorice, which is something that we share in common, actually. <laughs> so when, when all else fails, I can wake up in my bed with a, a bag of Australian licorice and my iPhone. <laughs> well, I don't know that licorice and the iPhone really do it for me. <laughs> <laughs> Small pleasures. But but I do enjoy Australian licorice. They do they make the best. They do. Incredible. Um, Robin, thank you so much for your time. I have so many questions I did not even get to. And so I hope there will be a future time where we'll be able to break proverbial bread uh, again. Um, but before we depart and before I uh, ask the last question, um, I just want to, again, take a moment to acknowledge you, um, the tireless work that you do over and over and over and over again. I've, I've written a couple of things. I'm not a writer, but I've written a couple of things and just the force of, of both like history, past, present, and future, um, the ability to have your hands in multiple pots and then to weave them all into like a pithy narrative that not only gets to the heart of the matter, but to the heart of the people reading it. That is an incredible, incredible, incredible skill. And it's something that, you know, allows us to take a pause um, and to maybe see something that we didn't quite see, right? Maybe we, we were looking, but we didn't see. And I think ultimately, hopefully, see ourselves, right? See, 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 see the grace that we wish was bestowed upon ourselves, um, the beauty that was bestowed upon ourselves. And so I just want to thank you for that work. I mean, even in the research, I was like, okay, I these articles, I mean, she just did seven articles like the last week like I'm trying to like keep up it is it is tireless and that work right, I'm, just trying to, I'm just trying to earn my keep That's <laughs> <it>. <laughs> oh please it's, it's so it's so beautiful that 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 there will be a record like you know there will be a record of a black woman's point of view over this contemporary time that we find ourselves in and and that is that is a that is a legacy and a work that will resonate for years and decades and centuries to come. And so I just want to thank you for continuing to show up because I can only imagine 
um, what it takes to do that day in and day out and know that, I mean, not like you need a damn speech, but thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for taking this time. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you all so much for tuning in today. It's the work of writers like Robin that allow us to see instead of simply look at the world around us. What did you see today? What stuck out to you? Let us know over on Instagram and Twitter at Black Imagination and share with one or two friends you think would really love this convo. Words have power and vocabulary allows us to speak to our own perceptivity. It's time to get to the business of living and add some new words to our own personal dictionaries. Stay curious and keep dreaming.